Would you take the Word of God this evening and turn with me to the book of Psalm, Psalms, and we'll look at Psalm 5 this evening. We began last week a reading here in Psalm 5, and we're going to continue in our study. We really emphasized the first three verses, which deal with the subject of prayer, and the book of Psalms is really a book of prayer, a book of worship and a book of praise. Uh, it's uh, known as the songbook for the, uh, for the Hebrews, and uh, we uh, certainly learn how to worship and how to examine our communion with the Lord. And, uh, you know, we are saved for fellowship and communion. That's what, now, I know we have eternal life because of Christ. Uh, we have a home in heaven. We are seated in heavenly places in Christ, but God also gives us an access to God, a fellowship and communion with Him. You know, the Bible is not just a book about how we have to observe rules. It's a book about how we have a relationship with the Lord. Now, there are always rules in a relationship, and so we know that. And uh, in the book of Psalms, we, I believe, learn some important foundational things so that we keep a healthy relationship with the Lord. And the thing that we know for certain is that when there is any conflict in the relationship or the relationship is not what it, it, it ought to be or it could be, it is always our problem. It's not the Lord's problem, right? We are always, you know, it's not like all the other relationships. Sometimes you may be at fault or your sibling might be at fault or your spouse may be at fault. But in this relationship we have with the Lord, the Lord is never at fault. We are the ones at fault, and so uh, we need to examine things. So let's read again Psalm 5, begin reading in verse 1. The Bible says, Give ear to my words, O Lord, consider my meditation. Hearken unto the voice of my cry, my King and my God, for unto thee will I pray. My voice shalt thou hear in the morning, O Lord, in the morning will I direct my prayer unto thee, and will look up. And so we stop there and examine the first three verses last week. Let's continue, verse 4. For thou art not a God that hath pleasure in wickedness, neither shall evil dwell with thee. The foolish shall not stand in thy sight. Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. Thou shalt destroy them that speak leasing. The Lord will abhor the bloody and deceitful man. Notice verse 7. But as for me... I will come into thy house in the multitude of thy mercy, and in thy fear will I worship toward thy holy temple. Lead me, O Lord, in thy righteousness because of mine enemies. Make thy way straight before my face. For there is no faithfulness in their mouth. Their inward part is very wickedness. Their throat is an open sepulcher. They flatter with their tongue. Destroy thou them, O God, let them fall by their own counsels, cast them out in the, in the multitude of thy transgressions, for they have rebelled against thee. But let all those that put their trust in thee rejoice. Let them ever shout for joy, because thou defendest them. Let them also that love thy name be joyful in thee. For thou, Lord, wilt bless the righteous with favor, wilt thou compass him as with a shield. I would like to bring your attention to verse 7. 
And in keeping with what I mentioned at the beginning, when we think about communion and fellowship with the Lord, we know that the source of conflict or the source of the broken fellowship between man and God is the sin of Adam and Eve, their disobedience, their rebellion against God, and we could say appropriately their idolatry. Uh, They were convinced, at least Eve was convinced, that she could be like God and she could know good and evil. And so as a result, she broke that fellowship. And so when we think about our fellowship with the Lord, we know throughout the book of Psalms that there's an emphasis in that fellowship and communion with the Lord. Many of those Psalms are written by David, who is called the man after God's own heart, who was a man that had fellowship and communion with the Lord. And truly, his boldness in the outward sphere in the world should be attributed by his communion and fellowship with the Lord. That's where that came from. How could this young lad go out and defy Goliath? How could he do that? I don't think it was because of his own boldness or his own strength. Everybody knew he was not able, but there is something about his relationship with the Lord. Remember what he said? Is there not a cause? Is not somebody going to go out and against this man because we serve a living God. And so that boldness came from that relationship with the Lord. But notice verse 6, there is an emphasis here, or verse 7, excuse me. The psalmist says, but as for me. Now, I I like those words because as we think about uh, the Bible and we think about the truth throughout God's Word, I think we all often may agree with the truths about God. And we'll see some of those in this psalm. But it's very important for us to make personal application when we study God's Word. And here there is a um, direct emphasis on personal application where the psalmist says, but as for me, notice he says, I will. And we're going to look at what he's going to determine to do. And so I want to preach this evening on this and maybe you can Put that in in your own heart and your own mind. What do I need to do? But as for me, I will. And notice here, I believe that this psalm is about communion and fellowship with the Lord. And so the psalmist is going to determine to do this. And so uh, he's going to turn things here uh, personally towards him. Now, if we were to divide this psalm, I would divide it in in this way. As you look throughout the structure of this psalm, and, and certainly I'm sure that Other preachers, or even as you study God's Word, you might uh, maybe uh, give a different outline, but I think that as we look at the words, we can come with a structure of this psalm, a point of emphasis. The first three verses, notice, there is a desire for communion that's mentioned by the psalmist. If you notice, he says, Give ear to my words, O Lord, consider my meditation, hearken unto the voice of my cry, My King and my God, for unto thee will I pray. My voice shalt thou hear in the morning, O Lord. In the morning will I direct my prayer unto thee. And so, and we'll look up. And so the psalmist here, you see here uh, uh, the desire for communion that is expressed by him. He's going to, he tells us what he's going to do. He's going to pray. He's going to pray to the Lord. And he mentions that in the morning. Then we read verse 4 through 6. And then the psalmist turns and he mentions things about not himself, but about the Lord. Notice verse 4. 
For thou art not a God that hath pleasure in wickedness. Notice verse 5. The foolish man shall not stand in thy sight. Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. And then in verse 6, Thou shalt destroy them that speak leasing. And so in the first three verses, the psalmist speaks about his desire for communion. And then in verse 4 through 6, we see that the psalmist speaks of the knowledge that comes about in communion. And that is a knowledge of God. Notice he mentions, Thou art, thou hatest, thou shalt. And so we'll talk about these things. And then, in verse 7 and 8, the psalmist mentions, and I think I, we could entitle this, he's going to nurture this communion with the Lord by doing certain things. Notice, but as for me, I will come into thy house in the multitude of thy mercy, and in thy fear will I worship toward thy holy temple. Lead me, O Lord, in thy righteousness because of mine enemies. Make thy way straight before my face. And so the psalmist expresses desire for communion, then he expresses the knowledge of communion with the Lord, what he learns about the Lord, and then he talks about how he's going to nurture that communion with the Lord and what he is going to determine to do. And then, in the last section of the psalm, we find what I would refer to as the consequence of communion or the lack thereof. Notice verse 9. So, First three verses, I, me, my, this is what I'm going to do. Four through six, thou, Lord, this is who you are, this is, what you do, this is what you hate, this is what you will do. And then he talks about what he is going to determine to do, verse seven and eight, me, I, me, my. And then he's going to speak in general terms about them and they. So notice verse nine. For there is no faithfulness in their mouth. Their inward part is very wicked, wickedness. Their throat is an open sepulcher. They flatter with their tongue. Destroy thou them, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Cast them out of the multitude of their transgressions, for they have rebelled against thee. But let all those that put their trust in thee rejoice. Let them ever shout for joy, because thou defendest them. Let them also that love thy name be joyful in thee. For thou, Lord, will bless the righteous with favor, will thou compass him as with a shield. And so you notice the language here. He begins the psalm by saying, I want desire communion with the Lord. This is what I want. And I'm going to pray in the morning. I'm going to ordain my day and begin my day with the Lord. And the things that I'm going to learn about the Lord are those things. And so I'm going to nurture this communion. And then he turns and he gives some broad statements, makes some general statements about, I believe, to be the consequence of communion or the lack thereof, because for one group, you find them being cut off, you find them perishing, you find their counsels being destroyed, while the other rejoice, joy, and are joyful. So there's both a negative consequence of those who do not have communion with the Lord, and there is a positive consequence of those who do have communion with the Lord. And so we'll look at those. So let's look at now, let me review the first three verses. We uh, dealt with, you remember, under the desire for communion, we talked about the approach of prayer. Uh, the psalmist approached the Lord in prayer, but notice, as he approaches the Lord in prayer, he says, Consider my meditation. And so, 
Communion is born out of meditation in the Lord. And so we have to cultivate a spirit of prayer which is better than the habit of prayer. Right? We don't do things because out of habit. We do things because it has life. We don't do things by, because of tradition. And so there is something that drives the psalmist to pray. He says, consider my meditation. And that's why he's going to pray, because the Lord has considered his meditation. So we talked about the approach of prayer, the relationship of prayer. He says, my, uh, notice verse 2, my king and my God. And so he expresses a relationship. And certainly all communion is rooted in a relationship. Uh, Jesus told his disciples when he prays, says, when you pray, say, our Father which art in heaven. That means that there is a relationship which is the basis of our approach in prayer. And then we talked about the appropriate time of prayer. And the psalmist is quite specific. Twice he mentions in the morning. Twice in verse, uh, notice verse 3. My voice shalt thou hear in the morning, O Lord. In the morning will I direct my prayer unto thee and will look up. And so that's the appropriate time of prayer. When are we to pray? We are to pray, I believe, in the morning. And so there is a pattern where he says, I'm going to begin my day in prayer so that I can remain focused on the Lord. If you notice, the verse ends with this, I will direct my prayer unto thee and will look up. So notice here, the idea of the psalmist, I'm going to begin my day because if I begin my day like that and I'm going to pray with purpose, expecting a return on my prayer, expecting an answer to my prayer... And so, how do you expect a return on prayer? You look up. You look to the Lord. You look to see how God is going to answer your prayer. And so, that's the expectation of prayer. So, we talked about those things. The approach of prayer, the relationship of prayer, the appropriate time of prayer, and also the expectation of prayer. But we move now to the next part of this psalm, verse 4 through 6, and that is the knowledge of Communion. So we not only found the desire for communion, but now we enter into the knowledge of communion. Notice here, verse 4 through 6. I want you to notice here, and I've uh, circled them in my Bible, three times the psalmist is going to say, Thou, and he's going to make some uh, true statements about God. Notice verse 4. Thou, for thou art, he declares who God is. Verse 5, the foolish shall not stand in thy sight, thou hatest all workers of iniquity. He declares uh, really uh, God's perspective on wickedness and sin, how God feels about it. And then in verse 6, thou shalt destroy, and then he talks about something that God will do, an act that God will do. So notice here, the psalmist here, he's talking about his prayer to God, but notice he makes some declarative statements about God. And by the way, we as God's people should be able to make some declarative statements about God. This is who God is. This is how God feels about this. And this is what God will do with this. Now, where does that come from? It comes from a place of communion. Communion with the Lord. Uh, communion with the Lord, again, is learning in His Word. We learn some truths about God. In other words, what I'm trying to emphasize here is when you read the Ten Commandments, we should not view the Ten Commandments as just a set of rules and regulation. We should view the Ten Commandments as 
What do I learn about God in those commandments? Because truly that's what we learn. You see, they're not just there to give us a standard of morality. It's there to show us so that we may know what God is like and who He is and what He likes and what He hates. And so, notice those statements. Now, I wrote some things down. So verse 4, thou art. Verse 5, thou hatest. And verse 6, thou shalt destroy. And so we learn three things here. And I believe if we truly have communion with the Lord, we're going to learn three things about the Lord. Number one, He first declares the absoluteness of God's purity and holiness. Now notice with me, verse 4, For thou art not a God that hath pleasure in wickedness, neither shall evil dwell with thee. Now, that is a declarative statement about God. And here he declares the absoluteness, and I use the word absoluteness because of the language that is used here in the text. He says, Thou art not a God that hath pleasure in wickedness, neither shall evil dwell with thee. And so these are categorical, Categorical statements? Is that a word? That is a word. Okay, I didn't just invent it. I'm glad I didn't invent it. All right, because I do invent some words sometimes. And so here he declares the absoluteness of God's purity and holiness. Thou art, you are this God. Now, this is very helpful because we live in a society and really a under the umbrella, umbrella of Christendom, a group of people who have certain ideas about God and who want to say, well, I just don't believe in a God like this. And often they may even refer to something that God is according to His Word. And so what we learn, what grows out of communion with God is a deeper knowledge of God. And what I believe, and I've preached on this before, uh, one of the main things that we learn of God by communion with God is His purity and holiness. Do you agree with that? Over and over again in His Word, God makes sure that when man wants to speak to him, that God makes him fully aware of His holiness. Now, I've dealt with this. He did this with Moses. Remember at the burning bush? He says, now before you proceed any further... Take off the shoes from thy feet, because the place where you're standing is holy ground. Now the dirt, there's nothing holy about the dirt, but the dirt becomes holy as soon as God steps on the scene. You remember when the angel of the Lord came to Joshua? He says, I'm, I have a message for Joshua. And he says, now before you, 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 you I'm going to give you the message, you need to take off your shoes from off your feet, because you're standing on hold in the presence of God. And so we understand here that the basis of communion with the Lord, what do we learn? The main thing that we learn about God is the absoluteness of His purity and holiness. So that means that what comes out of communion in our lives is more purity and more holiness. Not more defilement. Now, the wording here... God does not have pleasure in wickedness. Now, America needs to hear that. And those who refer to themselves as Christians in America need to hear that. God does not have pleasure in wickedness. Now, 
I know what we typically do. We like to justify wickedness. And we like to say to ourselves that God will be okay with a certain measure of wickedness. And the truth is, He has no pleasure in wickedness. He does not like wickedness. Furthermore, He makes another statement. He says, Neither shall evil dwell with thee. You know what that means? Uh, He puts it in another way in another verse. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Now he's talking here about praying to God. And so what the Bible shows us is here is the psalmist, what he learns, the knowledge that he gets uh, uh, from God in communion is that he cannot regard sin in his life and continue in this communion with the Lord. Why? Because the first thing he's going to learn, if he knows that what he's going to learn is the absoluteness of God's purity and holiness, then he's going to make sure that he's not going to spend any time there. You see, evil is not going to dwell with the Lord. Well, isn't the psalmist says over and again, I want to dwell in the house of the Lord? But God says evil will not dwell in the house of the Lord. And so what happens is when we come in the presence of the Lord, you know what the first thing that God confronts us about is the sin in our lives. And if there is no confrontation of sin in our lives, and we are not having communion with the Lord. Now we may think that we are having communion. We may think that we're worshiping God and that we're praising God and that, we, uh, uh, have, that we're, we're good with God and we are not if we don't see his, the absoluteness of His purity and holiness. So he first declares the absoluteness of God's purity and holiness. Secondly, notice verse 5. The foolish shall not stand in thy sight. Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. So he secondly describes the seriousness of God's perspective. So he declares God's purity and holiness, but now he describes the seriousness of God's perspective. And there's the words, now, words in verse 5 and then in verse 6. Notice, he says, The foolish shall not stand in thy sight, thou hatest all workers of iniquity. Notice verse 6. Thou shalt destroy them that speak leasing. The Lord will, what's the next word? Abhor the bloody and deceitful man. And so the idea here is that God hates and God abhors. And so there's something about uh, the wicked, about leasing, about deceitfulness, about the workers of iniquity that that is repulsive to God. Now we've all have had, and certainly there's things that are repulsive to different people and... uh, But the truth is, we've all been repulsed by something. We've all abhorred something. Whether it is by the sight, or the smell, or the taste, there are things that we've abhorred, or that we've detested. Now, we're not talking here about food, or about the smell of something. We're talking about, now there is, that is used figuratively throughout God's Word, that often the sin comes as a stench in the nostrils of God, and it The idea is it turns his stomach. He can't stand to look at it, to hear about it. And so here we learn, uh, we find a description of the seriousness of God's perspective when it comes 
to folly, when it comes to iniquity, when it comes to uh, deceitfulness and leasing. Speaking leasing. And so, we see described here the seriousness of God's perspective. But then, and by the way, what comes out of communion is not a greater awareness of just God's holiness and God's purity, but what comes out of communion is a duplicated sense and a duplicated perspective. And so what God's perspective is on something becomes our perspective. And so what God hates, we begin to hate. And what God abhors, we begin to abhor. You see, have you ever, have you ever um, and I'm not necessarily just talking about maybe sin in your life, but have you ever maybe got used and accustomed to sin in the world where you see something over and over again and you just kind of become used to it? It really doesn't bother you anymore. Um, you know, I think one of the, the, the main ways, I think one of the most common things is uh, taking the name of the Lord in vain. Now that's blasphemy and that's a serious thing in the eyes of the Lord. But, I, you know, we get so accustomed to that. Where people say, and excuse me, oh my God, and I, I don't, I'm not going to speak ever, ever, irreverently of the Lord. Or someone will just exclaim, Jesus Christ. That should grieve the heart of the saint. God's name is not to be used lightly. It is not to be taken in vain. And whoso taketh the name of the Lord in vain speaks blasphemy. And it is a serious thing. And so the things that, that God hates, someone who just speak His name flippantly without consideration that He is the Almighty God and that He is holy. And so if we get to the place where it doesn't grieve us anymore, then we have to ask ourselves, is my level of communion with the Lord what it ought to be? Because I'm not having the same perspective that God has. So the knowledge of communion is, there's a declaration of the absoluteness of God's purity and holiness. There's a description of the seriousness of God's perspective, which becomes our perspective. But then thirdly, verse 6, notice, he says, Thou shalt destroy them that speak leasing. The Lord will abhor the bloody and deceitful man. And so thirdly, here we, uh, we see uh, he expresses uh, confidence in the certainty of God's punishment. So here's the progression. God is holy and pure. Because God is holy and pure, He hates evil. He abhors workers of iniquity. But we also have to recognize that God will punish sin. That's what we learn about God. Right here. Now that's what the psalmist declares his knowledge of God to be. And those are emphatic declarations. If you notice the word, Thou shalt, verse 6, destroy them. He, 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 it's not a guess. Well, I hope, God, that... Now, sometimes the psalmist expresses some concern that the evil workers go unpunished. But here he expresses the certainty of God's punishment. Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. Thou art not a God. And so these are all emphatic statements. And so, uh, by the way, we believe in absolute truth and we believe in emphatic statements about God. And so when the Bible tells us this is what God is, uh, this is what He likes, and this is what He doesn't like, and this is what He will do with what He doesn't like, then we can be emphatic as well in those statements about the Lord. Now that arises out of communion with the Lord. 
So we see the desire for communion, verse 1 through 3, the knowledge of communion, verse 4 through 6, but then we see the nurturing of communion in verse 7. Now, if you notice here, he says, verse 1 through 3, I will do this, I will pray. In the morning, I'm going to do this, and then uh, when I um, pray in the morning, I will expect something from God, and what I've learned about God is that God is this, and God, uh, He uh, hates this, and abhors this, and God will do this. Now, this is what I need to do, me personally. This is how I learn to nurture this communion with the Lord. What do I need to do? So, so this is what he says. But as for me. And so we should, with the psalmist, agree and say, Lord, what do I need to do? What, what do I need to do in my life to be able to nurture this communion with the Lord? So here it is. I will come into thy house in the multitude of thy mercy. And in thy fear will I worship toward thy holy temple. Lead me, O Lord, in thy righteousness. Because of mine enemies, make thy way straight before my face. So I want you to notice here. He says, but as for me, and this is what he's going to do. He's going to do three things. This, you want to nurture, commune with the Lord? You have to do these three things. Number one, we notice his habit. This is his personal responsibility. Notice, I will come into thy house. Do you see that? That's his habit. That's a habit. Now, that is an act that he does. I'm going to be in the habit. I'm going to, um, notice verse 7, I will come into thy house. In other words, the psalmist affirms what he is going to do in his life. He is going to enter something that is habitual in his life that he's going to keep doing over and over and over again so that he may nurture communion with the Lord. Now, do you remember David at some point in his life when he was being chased for, for um, uh, I guess, running away for, for his life? You remember what he says, oh, that he, he longed for the house of the Lord. He longed to be back. Why? Because he was not able to go there by habit as he did previously. And so here his habit is his personal responsibility. And by the way, in our lives, we all have to develop habits. Now I think that we all have habits. Some are good habits. Some are bad habits. Do we all agree with that? Right? We all have habits. Some are good. Some are bad. I will come into thy house. You see, so this tells us this about David. He says what he is going to determine to do. This means that when he says, I will come, he is not in the house of the Lord. He's not saying, I am in the house of the Lord. He's saying, I will come. I will be in the habit of going to the house of the Lord. Now, what we learn here is that there is a habit that he's going to form in his life, whether he feels like it or not. Really, the feeling does not really matter if one day he wakes up and he says, well, I just don't feel like going to the house of the Lord today. No, I will come to the house of the Lord. That's what I'm going to do. 
Now today we don't have the house of the Lord in the sense that they had a temple there. Certainly we have the idea of the local church, but really we are the temple of the Lord. And there is uh, an aspect that uh, the Lord dwells within us and so we can have a um, daily altar. We refer to maybe the family altar and the personal altar and then the church altar and all those things that are to be part in our lives. And so we understand the importance of that. And so I'm not just talking about church attendance. I'm talking about a desire and a habit Uh, which expresses his personal responsibility to say, I want to be in fellowship and in communion with the Lord, and I'm going to do this habitually. I'm going to determine to do that. Now, I know what you may say. So, well, pastor, isn't there a danger to just do things out of tradition? I agree. You're absolutely right. But here comes the second point. So first of all, he, he, he mentions his habit, which is his personal responsibility. This is what I'm going to do. Secondly, he mentions his heart. Now, notice he doesn't mention the heart per se, verse 7, but notice what he mentions. As for me, I will come into thy house in the multitude of thy mercy, and in thy fear will I worship toward thy holy temple. Do you see that? He not only says that he is going to go habitually to the house of the Lord, he says he is going to make sure that when he goes, he's going to do it in the fear of the Lord. He's going to worship in the fear of God. In other words, it is possible for David to go to the house of the Lord, but not to worship in the fear of God. It is possible for him to get into the habit of going to the house of God, but not to truly have the fear of the Lord and to worship the Lord in the fear of God. And so what is he referring to? His heart. You see, we have to all develop habits in our lives, healthy habits for our communion with the Lord. But we also have to keep our heart in check to make sure that we don't do things just because of tradition. Because that's just empty religion and it doesn't produce anything. And by the way, most religions of the world are involved in just that. Their religious activity is just there uh, as a way to outweigh the sin in our lives. And so they're trying to balance this out. And so they do things out of tradition. They do things because they have to. They do things because there's some guilt in their lives that they feel they have to compensate for. And it's empty. It's vain. it's, It's empty religion. It's not real. It's not genuine. So, his habit really is his personal responsibility. His heart here is his internal disposition. In thy fear will I worship. So that means we can worship without the fear of God. Notice the words. In thy fear will I worship toward thy holy temple. Now it's interesting here that in the first part of verse 7, he says, I will come into thy house. So that's physically into the house of the Lord. But then he talks about a second aspect. Not being in the house of the Lord, but worshiping toward the holy temple. Now, that means with his eyes on the Lord. Now, the temple, we understand in the Old Testament, represented the Shekinah glory of God, the presence of God, in the tabernacle and the wilderness wanderings. And then under Solomon, he built the temple after the likeness of the tabernacle, certainly in a permanent structure. But the point is that represented the presence, the glory of God, the place where God dwelt. Now, Solomon expresses very clearly that he didn't think that the temple contained God. 
right? God is higher than the heavens. He is greater than just to being confined to the temple. But the point is, uh, uh, David saw that as a representation of the presence of God, and he wanted to keep his eyes on the Lord. And so he speaks of his his heart. I'm not going to bow in the morning and pray because that's what I, uh, I, because that's the habit, right? The habit is good, but it's not the habit alone. The heart has to be involved. And the heart has to be in the fear of the Lord. And that's the only way to truly worship God. You, you remember when Jesus was with the woman at the well and they were talking about Jacob's well and they, the, the Samaritans had made their own temple. Now, they were the Jews referred to them as really half-breeds that didn't have any fellowship with the Samaritans. The Samaritans, basically, they built their own temple. They had their own religious system. And you remember what Jesus told us? says, you know not what you worship. They that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. Now, you remember what He declared about God? God is absolutely holy and pure. His perspective on sin is that He abhors and hates it. And God will punish sin. That's what the psalmist learned about God. So when we come in the presence of God, we get to the place where, now think about it, He is a holy God who does not abide sin and who does punish sin. How do we approach God? But with fear. How else can we approach God but with fear? Now, we understand as Christians that there's a sense of great joy and comfort and thrill to know that the Holy God paid for our sins on the cross of Calvary, that we rejoice in that, but it doesn't mean that after we're forgiven of all of our sins that God now He likes your sin. He still abhors it. It is still vowed to Him. And so when we come into the presence of God, that's, and so the fear of God, that's, that's the heart. So there's his habit, his personal responsibility, his heart, his internal disposition toward God. And then thirdly, notice in, in verse 8, then he says, Lead me, O Lord, in thy righteousness because of mine enemies. Make thy way straight before thy face. So notice here, what comes out of being in the house of the Lord and worshiping in the fear of the Lord toward the holy temple. What comes out of that what comes out of that is the psalmist says, Lord, lead me in thy righteousness because of mine enemies. Make thy way straight before my face. And so the psalmist, he arises out of communion unto righteousness. You see that? He does not arise out of communion on his own, saying, okay, I've done my religious duty, now I'll be on my own. I was the Christian at the temple, and now that I'm out in the world, I'm not going to live as a Christian. Because the Christian is confined to the church house. Or to my time of devotion. Or to my time of communion. But as I go on in my life, no. He says, lead me, Lord, now that I arise out of this time of communion. Basically what he says, he says, first of all, he declares his habit, his personal responsibility, his heart, his internal disposition, but then here he says, His help! Lead me, Lord! 
That's his expectation. Lead me, O Lord, in thy righteousness because of mine enemies. You see, make thy way straight before my face. It's interesting that he mentions here, lead me, O Lord, in thy righteousness because of mine enemies. Now, throughout the Psalms, I think there's a general sense of what the enemy says about the psalmist. What does he say? You, you can't find any help in God. That's what we've read so far in the book of Psalms. The enemy mocks the idea of the psalmist trusting in the Lord. And, and so here the psalmist says, Lead me, O Lord, in thy righteousness because of mine enemies. And so notice here, what the psalmist says is, Lord, I need your help in this life. Because I have those who oppose me, I have those who oppose you. And so I need you to lead me in the paths of righteousness because of mine enemies. So the psalmist basically says, We can become distracted by our enemies. In other words, in the temple is a place of communion and fellowship. When we arise out of that, we go into the world and we interact with people and we conduct our daily business. And so there might be an opportunity when we arise from that place of communion to become distracted from the place of communion. Where we feel that, well, now I have another path. And so we might feel the sense that I have my path in communion and then I have another path in when I face my enemies. No, no. Lead me, O Lord, notice, in thy righteousness because of mine enemies. And so the psalmist, he is fully aware of what's coming. He knows that there can be distraction. And so he says, Lord, would you lead me? That's his desire that comes out of communion. His desire that arise out of communion is for him to stay in communion. You see, the only way that the Lord can lead the psalmist is if he remains in communion with the Lord. Would you lead me, Adeline? Come. What, what, what's, what's lead? Well, if I lead, if I grab my daughter's hand and I lead her, she has no idea where she's going, and so you, you come with me. And I lead her. And so there's the place of communion, but then there's the sense of, I need help. And so if leading takes place, then communion continues. Lord, lead me in the paths of righteousness because of mine enemies. I don't want communion with, or, or I don't want the circumstances of this life to be a place where our communion is broken and then there is no fellowship anymore and I'm on my own. No, no. The psalmist arises out of communion and says, I don't want to be on my own. The moment I arise from the place of communion, I want to be led. He mentions at the end of the verse, he says, Make thy way straight before my face. Now, I like the expression because he says, he doesn't say, make my way straight. Do you notice that? Make thy way straight. Why? Because there's the path of righteousness and there's the path of unrighteousness. And we are not the determiner of what is righteous and what is unrighteous. God is the determiner of what is righteous and what is unrighteous. 
And so here the psalmist, he arrives out of that and he says, Lord, I know you have a way for me. I know that there is a way that you want me to walk in today. And so would you help me that as I walk through the course of this day, would you help me to see what is the straight way? Would you help me to see how I can live in a way that pleases you? Would you help me to see so that I don't stray away from the path of righteousness that you've set before me? You see, as the psalmist arises out of communion, he is concerned that as he arises out of that place, he might go astray. Is that the concern in our lives? Now, the habit is good. Right? That's personal responsibility to develop the habit. The heart is good. Internal disposition towards the Lord. Not just a habit. Not just a religious duty. But then, there's the help that arises out of that where we don't just think that it's confined to the right heart in the right place at a specific time. But what arises out of that is a help from the Lord where we say, Lord, would you help me to walk? Take the next step. Because I expect you, Lord, to lead me in the path of righteousness and to make your way straight before my eyes. I just want to know how I can please the Lord. Now, and I'll just briefly touch on the last part. Then we see the consequence of communion or the lack thereof. So in verse 9 through in verse 9 and 10, he talks about, and I'll just read those verses. There is no faithfulness in their mouth. Their inward part is very wicked. Their throat is an open sepulcher. They flatter with their tongue. Now, that is those who have no communion with the Lord. Remember, those who are in communion with the Lord are those who see the Lord pure and holy, and God does not, evil does not dwell where the Lord is. So these are those who have no fellowship and communion with the Lord. Verse 10, Destroy thou them, O God, let them fall by their own counsels. Cast them out. So notice, the, the idea of their own counsel is they've, they've determined the direction and the course of their lives. They've got their own way. And he says, Destroy thou them. Now, the reason why destruction comes is because they've chosen their own way over the Lord. That's why the proverb says, uh, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart. Lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge Him, and He shall direct thy path. Psalm 6, or Proverbs 6. And then He says, Cast them out on the multitude of thy transgressions, for they have rebelled against thee. So, the word here, those who walk in their own counsel, are those who have rebelled against God. Now, I know that we may not think of ourselves as rebels. But if we arise out of communion, whether it be in a personal devotion or even a church meeting, and God speaks to our hearts and we leave this place and we say, well, I know what the preacher said. I know what I read in my Bible, but I just don't feel convicted about it. And so I'm going to continue to live my own way, please my own self. Then you are a rebel. You are a rebel. You've chosen your own counsels. And you will, as Proverbs 1 puts it, you will eat the fruit of your own way. Now, that's the negative, but I want to really spend time on the positive. Because you're here in church. So, you've made a decision to be in the house of the Lord, in the congregation of the Lord. You've came with an expectation. I assume you came because you want God to speak to your heart. And so, could I show you the positive consequence of communion? I want you to notice verse 11. But let all those that put their trust in thee... What's the next word? Rejoice. Let them ever shout for what? 
joy. Because thou defendest them, let them also that love thy name be what? Joyful in thee. For thou, Lord, will bless the righteous with favor, will thou compass him as with a shield. Now let me leave you with verse 11 and then we'll be done. The word trust here, that is used, but let all those that put their trust in thee rejoice. The word trust here used means, the word is means to flee for protection. Now, if you uh, go to a, a car dealership, now I, I don't mean if, if you are a car salesman, ever been a car salesman in your life, I don't want to pick on you. But if you go to a, a car salesman and this car salesman, well, this is the deal we got for you and there's no schemes involved, no thing, and, and you might think, well, I'm either going to trust him or not trust him. And you might be inclined not to trust him. Why? Because he's a salesman. He's selling you something and he's making a commission of that. And so you might say, well, I don't trust him. Or you could say somebody, maybe you go to the car dealership and you trust somebody and you say, well, I believe that that person is honest and so I trust them. Now, now that, that's not what we're talking about here. It's not the, the same word. The word your trust means to flee for protection. The word means to make the Lord our refuge. Now, he says, let all those that put their trust in thee. Now, I think it's parallel road to Proverbs 6, where it says, uh, trust in the Lord with all thine heart. Lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy path. So, Trusting is really the desire for God to lead us to, to find the place of refuge in the Lord. Now notice he says, Let all those that put their trust in thee rejoice. Let them ever shout for joy. Who? Those that trust. Because thou defendest them. Why? Because he's the place of refuge. And so he defends us when we make him our refuge. Let them also that love thy name be joyful in thee. Now there's three words. And now those three words are similar, right? Uh, rejoice. Uh, shout for joy, and then be joyful. And, and so those words, we, well, they might be interchangeable, and certainly they are to a certain extent. They are similar words, but yet there are distinct words. They're all different Hebrew words, actually. The word rejoice means to brighten up, to cheer up. <clears throat> Um, when my children are upset about something, they will pout. I know that may never happen to your children. I'm certain of that, but it happens to my children. And so sometimes I will transform into this other creature to try to get them to smile, laugh, right? How many parents have you? You've done that. You act a little crazy to try to cheer them up, right? You, you've, you've done, please help me, right? You, okay, thank you. I'm not the only crazy person. And so uh, you will do things to try to make them smile or laugh or to, to lighten. But what you're trying to do is you're trying to lighten their countenance. You're trying to cheer them up. And, and so that's what the word means here. Rejoice uh, literally means to brighten up, to cheer up. And so when we think about that, the idea of rejoicing is first, the word has to do with affecting the countenance. That's what that means. The second word, uh, now those who know their defense to come from the Lord, notice they shout for joy. Now, the word here, it's a really an expression, it's really shout for joy is one Hebrew word. It means shout for joy. It means basically this, to creak, to shout, to sing, to triumph. That's what that word means. 
And so, while the word rejoice means to brighten up, to cheer up, affects our countenance, shouting for joy uh, talks about affecting our words and our sounds. In other words, you can sound when you when you think about, you know, you can you can sing. Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh. Or you can sing, Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh. So, the words are different, aren't they? There's not only the countenance, certainly, but then there's the words are different. They sound different when they come out. And so the idea here is the joy, shout for joy, means that when we trust in the Lord, it affects not only our countenance, but it also affects our words and our sounds. Then, there's the word joyful. Let them also that love thy name be joyful in thee. The, the word joyful here means to jump for joy. That affects the body. Now, it is not my style, and I'm sure most of you are aware of that. I'm more of a reserved person. And, um, and it's okay if, if somebody is not. You know, sometimes people are more expressive. Um, you can ask my wife, um, you know, hey, we're going we're gonna to do this. And aren't you excited? And I'll say, yeah, I'm excited. That, that's, that, that's the extent of it, right? And I am. I'm genuinely excited. I just don't typically physically jump for joy, right? Uh, so my excitement is more, uh, right, Sophie is the opposite, right? She, yes, exactly. She jumps up and down, and I mean, it's just, sometimes we've got to calm, calm down. So I, I'm, I'm the opposite of that. But the Bible says there is an effect. Those who trust in the Lord are affected in their countenance, their words, and their sounds, what proceeds out of their mouth, and also their body. Now, I think that the idea here of jumping for joy is the idea of, of health. If you think about David throughout the Psalms, we know that, Discouragement and difficulties affects those same areas. David fleeing from Absalom. How you doing, David? I'm really having a tough time. The words, sounds. And you might see David walk. In other words, every part of your being is affected. Your countenance, your words, your sounds, and your body. And so here he says, those that trust in the Lord, those who flee to the Lord for refuge, will rejoice, their countenance will be brightened up and lifted up and cheered up. Their words and their sounds will proceed differently than what their circumstances should allow. And then their body, and by the way, when you're depressed and stressed out and all those things, it affects your body. You know, the Bible talks about how uh, a merry heart doeth good like a medicine. And I believe they're saying that those uh, who are happy in life have joy, and let me, for us as Christians, the joy of the Lord. I believe we're healthier in the body because of it, as a result of that. What I'm saying is that if we trust in the Lord as we ought, if we flee to the Lord for a refuge, it affects our entire being. You know what that means? The alternative is if we don't trust the Lord, if we don't flee to the Lord for refuge, 
Now it's interesting, place of refuge, that's a place. If you, if you notice, you begin in communion with the Lord. I'm going to pray in the morning. I'm going to begin my day. I'm going to worship the Lord in the fear of the Lord. I'm going to habitually go to the house of the Lord. But then I want the Lord to lead me. And when I arise out of this place of communion, I'm going to encounter some enemies. I'm going to encounter those who blaspheme the name of the Lord. I'm going to encounter those who uh, may uh, say to me that there is no help for him in God. And so when I get to the place where I'm about to be discouraged, what I'm going to do is I'm going to flee to the Lord for refuge. Arising out of the place of communion, continuing wanting the Lord to lead us and direct us and to guard our way. And then when we are in trouble, we flee back to the place of communion with the Lord. And out of that place arises the countenance, the words and the sounds and the body is completely changed. Why? Because of what God does in our lives. Somebody may say, Pastor, I'm just discouraged. Have you begun your day in communion with the Lord? Have you asked the Lord to lead you throughout that day? And if peradventure anything happens during that day, and you fell out of fellowship with the Lord because of a reaction or anger, whatever happened in your life, have you fled back to the Lord for refuge? Could it be that we might begin with the Lord, but not continue or not end with the Lord? You see, this covers all the bases. We cover, we go about our daily love of the Lord, and then we flee back to the Lord for refuge. And so, that's the, the cycle of communion with the Lord. And the psalmist lets us in on this. So, the question is back to verse 7. But as for me... So, here's the question... What about you? As for you, is, it, is this what you desire in your life? To enjoy what the psalmist had? Again, the blessing of rejoicing and joy and joyfulness is found, notice the, at the end of verse 11, let them also that love thy name be joyful in thee. Ah, there it is. Joy does not arise because God changes our circumstances. Joy arises out of communion with God. There's another psalm, we'll get there, but in Psalm 46, 47, in, those, in that group there, he says, I will look to thy countenance, and thy countenance will lift up my countenance. See, when we see God's countenance, it just affects us. But if we're trying to fight this world and trying to live life on our own, fight our own fight, try to bring about our own victories, then we might, we might find ourselves most miserable. I believe that some, perhaps some of the most miserable Christians are those who may be serving God, but who are serving God without God. That may be the most miserable people. Because there's a sense that I should be happy because I'm serving God. No, service is not about necessarily what we do for God. It's about being with Him. 
and in communion and fellowship with Him. It's about making Him our lives. You see, God is not a lucky charm we throw in our lives in our pockets so that we can be happy. He is the source of happiness and joy.